Good morning to everybody. Hope you managed to stay warm last night, today. Uh, God is good all the time. All right. It is good to see everybody here this morning. Um, I do have an update on Corey Hamilton that came just at the last minute. Um, he did make it through his surgery just fine on Friday. He's now home and doing well. Uh, he will not be able to put any weight on his leg for the next five weeks. And this is a little bit of a problem for Corey because he he's, he's enrolled at Shawnee State and he's got to go to school. So we don't know exactly how that works, but uh, I know that besides the issue of healing, uh, we're asking for everyone to remember to pray about just the day-to-day thing of getting to school, getting to class, getting home and all that. Uh, he's got a little bit of a struggle ahead of him to stay off of that leg, but off to get to where he needs to be. And uh, we don't want him to miss out on school. I know he needs to be there. All right, um, here we go. Back before the holidays, uh, we were working on one theme, and that was the idea of dreaming God's dream. And uh, if you go back, this is like the sixth time we've come to this idea, and there's a couple more to go. But the very first lesson was about Abraham. And uh, God gave Abraham a dream in Genesis chapter 12. He's 75 years of age, and God basically, God said to him, he said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to give you land, and through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And he kind of said, hey, that's, that's my dream for you, Abraham. And uh, ten years pass, and nothing much has happened. There's been no land. There's been no uh, great blessing to any of the people around him. There's not, not been a child to even start to think about being a great nation. He's still childless. And in Genesis chapter 15, you find Abraham is, uh, I, I would say he would be somewhat confused and discouraged about the whole situation. I, uh, did I misunderstand what, you, what God said to me? I thought he said he was going to make a great nation out of me and give me a land and bless the nations of the world. But I'm not seeing anything. And it entered into uh, Abraham's mind that maybe he needed to go ahead and kind of take matters into his own hands. And he looked to the head servant of his household to become his heir. And he said, perhaps God was thinking that I was going to go, all this is going to happen through Eliezer, my, my servant. God comes to him and uh, Abraham needs to get straightened out. A- Abraham needs some encouragement. But God comes back to him 10 years later. It's Genesis chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. And what God does is he renews the dream with Abraham. And so here we are. This is what it says. Genesis 15, 5 and 6. And he took him outside, God did, and said, Now look toward the heavens. Count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned to him as righteousness. And so God goes out, he renews the dream. And Abraham was able to dream God's dream again. It took a lot of courage for that, a lot of faith. But it says there in verse 6, that Abraham believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Just as Abraham found the courage to latch on to God's dream again, to begin to dream it again, that's the kind of thing that we need, the same kind of faith, the same kind of courage or whatever, to start to dream God's dream again. It's so easy to lose track, to lose hold of it. 
And yet we know this one thing, that when God's dream becomes your dream, you guys, you're dreaming together, so to speak, those things almost all, those things will happen. They're going to come to pass. Maybe not in the time or in the exact manner that you're expecting, but they are going to happen. The second lesson that we, uh, we had was uh, about Joseph, and Joseph was the great dreamer. At 17 years of age, he's given a dream by God, and it takes 22 years for God to finally work it out and bring that dream to pass. But Joseph bought into God's dream. He began to dream it. It became his dream. And at age 39, Joseph saw that, that dream come to pass. There are, we spent the next three lessons basically talking about various ways that uh, God's dreams can get derailed or sabotaged or become very difficult for us. We talked, oh, I know we spent one lesson just talking about how, how hard it might be to see God. God is invisible. He's a spirit. He's got ways of working that we don't, uh, that we don't understand. And so sometimes he's busy um, propelling that dream, moving it along. We don't see it. Sometimes we get stuck in our past. Uh, something happened. Something bad happened way, you know, way long time ago. But we're, for all practical purposes, our life has ended there. And you can't dream God's dream if you're stuck in something bad, in some tragedy in the past. Sometimes we bury ourselves in um, religious busyness. We just get so busy with the logistics of just living life and, and maybe and, 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 and the things that we do by way of ministry and all that. We get lost and, and wound up in that, and it all becomes about logistics, just getting uh, the table set up and the, and, and the invitations out or whatever it is or, or, or showing up at the right place at the right time, and we forget our purpose. And truthfully, there are a lot of ways that God's dream for us can get derailed. And I, I'm going to hit five of these real quick this morning. I call them dream killers. If you get involved with, with what I'll call dream killers, um, you're going to find it very hard to dream God's dream. You will not be able to. These are five negative attitudes, five negative habits that will destroy our ability to dream God's dream. And here's the first one. Sometimes we let ourselves get so focused on our problems that we forget about God's promises. That's one that will kill your dreams right there. In Revelation 2 and 3, there are seven letters to the seven churches of Asia. And these churches have already been through a, a, a prolonged period of time of persecution. Domitian, the emperor, has uh, targeted the area of Asia. That would be Turkey, uh, modern-day Turkey. He's targeted that area. And this is where the persecution was especially intense. They've already been through about a decade of some really rough stuff. And, and God looks upon these churches, upon these Christians, and he sees their need for encouragement. And so he, uh, he writes to each of those churches, the main churches of Asia, uh, a, a letter. It's a short letter, and, and there's something that we learn when we, when we read these letters. There's not a single Christian in any of those churches who had not heard the promises of God before. God is not telling them anything in these letters that they have never heard before. But the letters show us something. They show us that God knows us better than we know ourselves. He, it tells us that we need to be reminded often of the promises of God, and especially when times are tough. There's a format to each of these seven letters. All of them begin with a commendation. Hey, these are the things you're doing right. I really like this. You're doing a good job. Then there comes a, a, a rebuke for some things. There's usually something 
where the church has kind of gotten off track and, and there's a rebuke that comes. Then there's a warning about the need to change. The word repent is going to show up in each of these seven letters. Repent, change, move in this direction rather than the one you're in. And then here's the part I want you to catch about each of those seven letters. In each of those letters, there's always a reminder at the very end about the promises of God, about what God has in store for them. I want to read you just some of those promises, uh, uh, but, but we could actually read the promises from all seven letters, and, and you'd see what I was talking about. But look at Revelation 2 and 7. This is the end of the first letter to uh, the Ephesian church. Let's, let's go ahead and put that one up, Matt. There we go. Thank you. Revelation 2 and 7. This is the end of the first letter to the church at Ephesus. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes. Here's the promise. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Then here's the second letter to the church at Smyrna. And here's the very end. He who has an ear, has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt. By the second death. There, that promise comes back. You're not going to be hurt. Go on to uh, the next slide there. Okay. Here's the one to Pergamum. At the very end, this is how it reads. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. And then, just jumping forward just a little bit, the, the one to the church in Sardis, Revelation 3 and 5. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And so here are these people under all of this pressure, under, under this persecution. And, and one of the things that God does, and I think is very important, is he reminds them of his promises. He renews his promises to these people. Well, that, that's who we are. Sometimes we get so focused on our problems, we forget about the promises of God. And if we forget the promises, it becomes very hard, very difficult to dream. Let's talk about number two. Sometimes we get so uh, overwhelmed by our responsibility in the kingdom of God that we forget the personal honor of God is on the line too. And without realizing it, what we are doing is we are taking on God's job in the, in the, big, the big plan. When you look at the promises of God, sometimes we look at the promises of God and we feel like, well, it's our responsibility to keep them, to make them happen. I know that I've done that. I've, I felt, you know, if things weren't happening in someone's life like, like it should, maybe they're a new convert. I get all worried, and I start, uh, I start trying to make things happen for that person because I don't want them to get disappointed in God. But the thing that we all have to remember is we didn't make those promises. And they are not ours to keep. God made those promises. And they're his promises to keep, not mine. And it's his honor that's on the line. And do you think that God will protect his own honor? The God who cannot lie. Do you think he will keep his word? That you will keep his promises? I certainly think so. Let me give you a couple examples of what I'm talking about. First of all, there is a prophecy in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44 about the kingdom of God, about the church. 
And actually what's happening here is Daniel is, is t has taken the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, God gave Nebuchadnezzar a dream, and, and, but he didn't know what it meant. And uh, Daniel was the guy who, could, who knew this kind of stuff. He had this gift from God. And Daniel takes that dream of Nebuchadnezzar, and he explains what the dream means. And it, there's one part of the dream that's very important. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. In the days of those kings, and he's talking about the kings of the Roman Empire, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. That kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Basically, God's, God's making a promise there. He says, hey, you know, I'm going to establish something here in the days of those kings. And, and if you follow this all and out, you'll find out he's talking about the Roman Empire. He says, and that kingdom will supplant and destroy every other kingdom in the world, and that kingdom that God is going to establish will endure forever. And from another direction, Jesus basically repeats this promise in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. During his ministry at Caesarea Philippi, he talks to his disciples, and he says, I say to you, well, he's actually talking to Peter, but the rest of the disciples are there. He says, I say to you, you're Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church. And then he says, the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The gates of Hades, the, uh, you know, the, the powers of Satan, uh, the, the powers of evil that exist in, in this world, they're no match. They will never overpower what God is doing in his kingdom. So there's God's promise. And, you know, I, I think sometimes we get worried <laughs> about that promise and, and other promises, too, worried that, that, that somehow we have to make it happen. And the question is, will the church survive? Will God's people make it through? Will we have victory? And here's what I want to say. If the church survives, it won't be because of us. I mean, if it's left up to us, we're in trouble. We're in deep doo-doo, okay? If the church survives, it won't be because of us. If, in fact, the church may have to survive in spite of us. In fact, I think that's probably true. That in spite of us, the church is going to survive. So how could we make it happen? The church will survive because it's a matter of God's honor. He said, he said, he made that promise. He's the one who said those things. And he'll have to keep it or he'll have to lay down his honor. I don't think God's going to do that. The church will survive because it's a matter of God's honor. And sometimes we are afraid to dream God's dream because we think we have to, we're the ones that have to keep it. No, if it's God's dream, God's promise, we're along for the ride. We're just kind of getting on board and riding along with it. That's what we're doing. We need to remember that God's honor is on the line. Here's the third thing I want to tell you. Sometimes we get so discouraged by our small numbers that we forget about the divine resources that God has supplied to us. Statistically, the demographic experts would say that we are insignificant. There's no, uh, no one that's uh, done any polling of, of the population of the United States. You know, at election time, it's all about finding out how these people vote and how they think and how you might win them and how you might influence them. I mean, that's the, that's the one situation. Or maybe it's about selling something. You know, how do these people think? Well, here's how we have to market to get these people on board and buying our product and all that. Statistically speaking, we are insignificant. We're nobody. In our country, our, the population is roughly 300 million. 
And right now, there's about, uh, about a million people who worship in churches of Christ, a cappella churches. There's about a million, about 10,000 congregations, something like that. Well, you do the math. We are a fraction of a percent, 0.3 percent, three-tenths of a percent of the population of the United States. And if you actually went to start to do that, you get down to something like a tenth of a percent for the world population. So we're pretty insignificant. And that's, that's a big discouragement to some people. If you took all the Restoration churches, I'm, not, I'm talking now just not just about the ones that worship without the instrument, but there's some that worship with the instrument, and there's, and there's some others, uh, different flavors or another, that are out of this Restoration movement that, that we're a part of. You'd have roughly about 3 million people. And uh, we're still just a fraction of a percent, a, a, a percent in the United States here. But here's what we have to remember, that the Christian church started with just 12 men. It took a while for the church to multiply and spread, but 275 years after Jesus gave the Great Commission, the Christian church swallowed up the Roman Empire, just like the prophecy said in Daniel 2.44. And God established a kingdom in that day, in that empire, that would never, ever end or be supplanted. But it took about 275 years for that to happen. We have to remember that numbers are not the whole game. We do. We sometimes we get focused on numbers because if you can count stuff, then you know whether you're going forward or backwards or whatever because you can count stuff. That's the stuff we're interested in. There is a point in uh, the life of Elijah, the prophet. I love the stories of Elijah, the, the record that's there about him. But there was a time in Elijah's life when he thought he was the only guy left in the whole land that really was serious about being uh, a man of God, about serving God, and staying away from the idols and all that. You know, just after Mount Carmel, for some reason or the other, he, in a matter of days, he ends up out in the desert just depressed out of his mind and ready to kill himself. And you say, How? that was that great victory on Mount Carmel, and here we are a week later, and you're out here ready to kill yourself? What is wrong with you? Well, God saw there's something bad wrong with him, and God took him from the desert and took him to a cave. And ministered to him there. And in, the, and, and in this cave, God did some things with him. God understood uh, he needed to help this man. But there's a point in Elijah's life when he thought he was the only guy left on the planet who cared anything about God. And here, these are his words. 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 13 and 14. When Elijah heard it, there's been a big storm with rocks flying around and everything at the mouth of this cave. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. I think I would have gone in a little deeper based on what was happening at the cave, mouth of the cave. But he goes out and he has to look. Behold, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And then he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And here it is. And I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. I'm the only guy left. I'm the only one. Well, just a few verses later, in this very same cave, in this same conversation, the angel of Jehovah, the Lord, told him, no, you're not quite right. I'm going to destroy all these people. They're they're going to be punished, but I want you to know there's 7,000 people here in this land who have not succumbed to idolatry. And so he goes on, verse 18, God speaks to 
Uh, and he says, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel. All the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. So numbers are not the key when we're talking about God. Uh, God has given us powerful weapons. He's put them in our hands. Uh, uh, they're powerful weapons. Spiritual weapons have been put in our hands by God. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive for the obedience of Christ. But there we are. The weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but they're divinely powerful for the destruction. of God has put some powerful weapons in our hands. And I know you've heard this many times before, but it comes down to this. One faithful person and God are a majority in any situation. But sometimes we let our small numbers discourage us and keep us from dreaming God's dream. It's a dream killer. Here's number four. Sometimes we get so focused on doubt, get overwhelmed in doubt, that we forget the proof that's there. We lose our ability to share in God's dream for us and for our church and for our family. And this is, this is how I want to say this. I know there's a lot of things you can say about faith, but you've got to remember this. Faith is a choice. That, that there's that element that we are never going to get away from. Faith is a choice. And here's what I mean. If you don't want to believe in God, if you don't want to believe in the Bible, you don't want to believe in Christ or the resurrection, you can always find a reason. You can always find something that you can hang your hat on and say, that's the reason why I don't believe. See that right there? That... That's the reason right there, that thing right there, that, that's my piece of evidence for rejecting uh, God, for rejecting the Bible. For, there's always something like that you can hang your hat on. You can say, that's the reason. But I, I hope you understand you're actually making a choice whether you realize it or not. But if you want to believe, and that's a choice too, if you want to believe, guess what? There's plenty of good reasons for believing. There's all kinds of evidence, strong evidence for faith. And I believe this very firmly. If you take the reasons for faith and lay them alongside some of the reasons that people have come up with for not believing, you're going to see how powerful the evidence is for faith in God, faith in the Bible, faith in Christ, faith in the resurrection. It's a no-brainer. There's no comparison. Faith wins out because the evidence is better. I'm going to say something here, and, and I, I mean this. I've, I've thought about these words very a lot. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead, historically speaking, is as certain as any event in ancient history. I'll say it again. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead, historically speaking. I'm not talking about spiritual things. I'm talking about facts. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead, historically speaking, is as certain as any event in ancient history. And I'll tell you this. If you give me three hours of your time and your undivided attention, I can present that evidence to you. And I think at the end of it, you're going to have to say, you know, I think he's got a point. I think he's probably right. And the argument goes something like this. The circumstances surrounding Jesus, the beginning of the church, and all that happened become unexplainable 
there is no good explanation of what happened in the first century if you take the resurrection of Jesus Christ out of the picture. It only makes sense when the resurrection is left in place. Now it all works. Take it out, he can't, it doesn't work anymore. Something's out of whack. And then there's different kind of evidence too, different kinds of proof that, many, that we as Christians have. We, we have witnessed, many of us, the providence of God. There's at least a couple times in my life, and I'm pretty sure God just got busy and was making sure that certain things happened at a certain time and I met certain people. Well, that's, that's the hand of God, and, and, and you're just very suspicious when you see those things happen. God's been busy. We've seen him working. And we've prayed our prayers, and, and, and some of us have seen some uh, miraculous answers. We've seen God do things. We've seen the hand of God touch our lives, and we, we know he's there. Well, here's the thing. We cannot dream God's dream for ourselves when we are filled with doubt. God's dream can only be dreamed by people of faith. And we have good reasons for believing. Here's number five. Sometimes we get so paralyzed with fear that we forget to obey. People who are paralyzed with fear cannot dream God's dream. I'm not saying that Jesus or the apostles or any Christian, for that matter, never experiences fear. They do. But I am saying that fear never controls, never controlled Jesus. Fear never controlled the apostles. They dealt with it. They, they, they had to overcome it. It was there. But it never kept them from doing what needed to be done. It never kept them from obeying. And when Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7, he says, For God has not given us the spirit of fear. He's given us a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. In Exodus chapter 14, that's where our scripture reading came from today. The nation of Israel has just left Egypt. They've headed east out of Egypt up toward the Canaan land. The land where that, that their uh, forebears left 400 years before. Came down and, you know, it was during the famine when Joseph was still uh, popular and known and a ruler in, in, in Egypt. And then something happened in those 400 years where the uh, people of Israel end up in, as slaves and all of this. God uh, hears their cry. He delivers them. But that was about 400. It took about 400 years for all that to, uh, to, to finally work itself out. And when the Israelites go out, they go out toward the east. They're headed back to Canaan land. And if you follow that, that path from Egypt up to Canaan land, there's a, there's a nation of people called the Philistines that's directly between. And when they first took off, they, they were headed straight up the coast there, and they were going to go right through Philistine territory. And there's a comment made in, in the story there. God said, God decided, no, I don't want them walking through the middle of the Philistines right now. I'm going to take them another way. They're not ready for the Philistines. So he turns them south, southeast. And uh, they end up in, in, in just a horrible situation. I mean, you'd say, well, it'd be better off going with the Philistines than what happened. But they end up right at the, at the edge of the Red Sea. There's a mountain to the north, a mountain to the south. And behind them is the Egyptian army coming after them. The Pharaoh had decided that, at, he, I know he, I said, I, you could go, uh, let them go, get out of here, we don't want to see you anymore. But a couple days after that, he changed his mind, he got his army together, he goes out, and he is chasing these people down. And I don't know what he wants to do, I don't know if he wants to kill them, or if he wants to take them back and make slaves out of them again, or what it is, but, but the Egyptian army is, is coming at him, and here's their situation. 
To the north, there's a mountain. To the south, there's a mountain. To the, uh, uh, behind them, coming from, the, uh, coming from Egypt, is the Egyptian army. And right here in front of them is about 10 miles of water called the Red Sea. It's a bad spot to be in. It, it, it's just a horrible spot to be in. So in, in Israel ends up in, in this horrible situation. They, they feel trapped. They feel doomed. They're upset with Moses. They're upset and mad at God. They're wishing they had never left. And so, you know, go back. Here we go to our scripture reading now, Exodus 14. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. And then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bring, bringing us out of Egypt? Verse 12 and 13. Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt saying, you know, we told you so. <laughs> Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. And then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. Now think about this. Where is forward? Forward is walking into 10 miles of open sea. There's at least 10 miles and maybe more that they've got to get across in order to get to some kind of solid, uh, solid land there. 10 miles of open sea. Go forward. All right. Would you walk into the sea? Even if Moses told you to do it, and Moses said it was all right, would you do that, or would, uh, would fear control how you responded in that way at that time? Now, there was a way of escape that God already had in mind, but it, no one could see it. And he's telling them to walk out. What? Walk out into the water. This is crazy. Well, th th this is not the whole story. In the next verse, there's something added to this scenario. God says to Moses, as for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. Okay, so he, Moses walks out to the water and he puts out his rod and the waters part. Now, do you trust it? <laughs> Can you believe what your eyes have just seen? Are you ready to commit yourself to walk down into that channel that's opened up there and go for the next 10 miles believing that the water is going to stay where it is right now? You're still, even when it's opened up like that, you're still dealing with fear. It took a lot of faith for those people to just walk down the bank and begin to go across there. And the thing that I'm just saying that even after the waters are parted, that didn't remove all the fear. There's still lots of things to worry about, still lots of things to be scared about, and still lots of good reasons to, well, maybe not turn around and go back to the Philistine Army, but head up one of those mountains and hide. I think that's what I would have done. I'd, I'd have gone up the side of the mountain and said, okay, you, I'm going to make it hard for you to get me. But even after the waters were parted, it did not remove all the fear. Yet, despite their fear, these people had enough faith to just go ahead and obey. 
Fear did not control them. Fear was there, but fear didn't control them, didn't keep them from obeying. And what you've got to understand, most of what we do as Christians is not done in pure 100% faith. That would be a very rare occasion that anything that we did as Christians was done in 100% faith. There's always an element of fear and doubt that we struggle with. In Mark chapter 9, there's a man who was brought, who brought his demon-possessed son to the disciples to have that demon cast out. And for some reason or the other, the disciples can't get this demon cast out. And about that time, Jesus comes along, and the man tells Jesus, Yeah, your disciples couldn't cast this demon out of my son. And Jesus says, Bring the boy to me. So they, they go get the boy, and as they're bringing him to Jesus, all of a sudden the demon takes over, and he's spitting and snarling and growling and rolling around and mouth foaming and everything on the ground. And they're in front of Jesus and all these people. And uh, here's the story, Mark 9, 20 and 21. They brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth, and he asked his father, and he, that is Jesus, asked the boy's father, how long has he been? Has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. I like the way Jesus talks back to him. If you can, I don't. do you know who you're talking to here? <laughs> if you can. <laughs> so here we are at verse 24. And it, it's, it's what this father says that, I, that at least makes part of my point. Part of what I'm trying to say to you is it, it comes up right here. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. I think that pretty much describes every Christian. I do believe. Help my unbelief. There's probably not a moment in, in all of our Christian lives that we are not struggling with at least some small element of doubt. Sometimes more and sometimes less. But, but this guy was just honest. He said, Lord, I believe. I, I want to believe. I, 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 and, and I know I need to believe, but here's the truth. I got some doubts, okay? I believe. Help thou my unbelief. And that's at least part of the point that I'm, I'm making is, is found in the plea of this man. There's no sin in doubt and fear, but you cannot let it rule the day. You cannot let it paralyze you. We must obey. Moses commanded the nation, he says, go forward. And they did, despite their fears. You cannot dream God's dream for you if you are paralyzed in fear. You can dream God's dream. You can dream God's dream if you will take what faith you have. And forget about your fears for a moment and simply obey. And here's this lesson in a nutshell. I wanted to put it in a nutshell for you. The left side of the, of the slide there is what I call the dream killers. And the right side is what I call the dream makers. And if you get all focused on your problems and you forget about the promises of God, you, you're not going to be able to dream God's dream. If you get all wound up in the, in the idea that, you know, hey, all this stuff that God has in plan for me is my responsibility to make it happen. 
I got a great, you know, you do have, we do have some responsibility. But my goodness, God's in this thing. God's honor's on the line. He said it's, certain things are going to happen, and they're going to happen. If we get all worried about our numbers, our numbers are small. Uh, and forget about the divine resources, the powerful weapons that God has put in our hands. We're not going to be able to dream God's dream. If we get all wound up in doubt, you know, we, we believe our doubts and doubt our faith. <laughs> uh, that's the, that, that you should doubt your doubts and believe your beliefs. And uh, that's what we have to do as Christians. We have good reasons for believing that God is going to keep his promises and God is able. And then there's that last one, paralysis. Some people get paralyzed with fear. You get all wound up in fear. You will not be able to obey. You will not be able to dream God's dream. And my question for you is, which side of this list do you live on? Do you leave, live mostly in the dream killer part of this list, or are you living in the dream makers? The left side is the dream killers. The right side of the dream makers. God has a dream for us. God has a dream for us as individuals, for our families, for the churches of Christ. He has a dream for the Sunshine Church of Christ. And if we can begin to dream God's dream, whatever that dream is for us, that dream will be realized. But if we let the dream killers rule, we're stuck. We're at a dead end. Nothing. Nothing happens. What do you want? What do you want to happen? Where do you live? You're living on the left side or the right side of, the, of these lists. Maybe there's someone here today who's not a Christian, and we're going to sing our hymn of invitation. We're inviting you to come to confess your faith, to repent of your sin, to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, to become a child of God. You, we can take care of all that before you leave. And uh, you can begin to dream. God has a dream for you. You can begin to dream his dream for you, and that's when things begin to happen. And maybe there's a Christian here that needs to say something to the church. We uh, certainly invite you to come too.